You know, there are not very many advantages as a child to staying home from school sick. You don't get to eat what you want to eat. You're limited to chicken noodle soup, and if things go well, a little jello later on in the day. You can't go outside. One advantage that I did enjoy as a child, though, was watching The Price is Right. Something about the loud music and the bright colors and Bob Barker just drew me in. And I loved all the choices that people had to make. They had to choose uh, price higher or lower. They had to choose a, a guesstimate on what something would cost. Really, all game shows are about choices. You have to choose a consonant or a vowel on Wheel of Fortune. You have to choose how much to wager in Final Jeopardy. My sister introduced us to a new game show that's on currently called The Wall. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but uh, it was a couple in the episode that we um, watched, a team of father and daughter. Uh, They were trying to earn some money to pay back her student loan debt because she had been in medical school. uh, At the the very, very end of the game show, they took the dad and they sent him away, essentially, where he was disconnected to everything that was happening out on the stage. So he didn't know what was going on. Meanwhile, she was earning money, losing money, earning money, losing money. She got up to almost a million dollars. It got down to just a few hundred thousand dollars and kind of was this yo-yo. And the hook at the end of this game show is that the dad got to decide side to stick with the money that she earned out on the stage, which he didn't know what it was. It could be a million dollars. It could be zero dollars or to play it safe. And they would give him $70,000 for their, their purpose. And he debated about it for a long time. You know, $70,000 is a lot of money to go towards student loan debt. But at the end, he decided to, to, to trust her that she had played the game well, and and they won a million dollars. We're going to look at Psalm 24 today. Psalm 24 is all about the greatness of God coming into the city of Jerusalem, written by King David, but tucked neatly inside Psalm 24 are three choices that you and I should make. Most of our choices are fun and games. Which of these three houses, apartments, where are we going to live in? They're all really great. Where are we going to go on vacation? What are we going to eat for lunch today? Um, But many of our choices have higher stakes. Uh, Who am I going to marry? Uh, Are we going to have children? How many children do we have? How are we going to parent them? What job am I going to take? What treatment should we choose, path A or path B? What Psalm 24 is going to teach us I'd love for you to write this down. God-glorifying, Jesus-following, spirit-led choices begin with God's unchanging character. God-glorifying, Jesus-following, spirit-led choices begin with God's unchanging character. See, we should have a framework built into us before we make a choice. God is fill-in-the-blank, so I will fill-in-the-blank. God is faithful, So I will trust. God is pure. So I will guard my eyes. God is compassionate. So I will show empathy. God is. So I will. And yet I find myself making decisions according to a different framework. I am fill in the blank. So I will. I am angry. So I will take that anger out on someone who's innocent. I am fearful, so I'll control and manipulate everyone around me. 
But God-glorifying, Jesus-following, spirit-led choices begin with God's unchanging character. Read Psalm 24 with me. Verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So here's what we learn from David. Number one, God owns That's the beginning of his song. Verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And David's thinking, if I can trace this back to God creating, then God owns the world and everything inside the world, including us. Colossians chapter 1 makes it a little bit more personal to us. Talking about Jesus, God's agent of creation. It says that in him all things were created, and for him all things were made, and in him all things hold together. So every meaningful question that a human can ask, who am I, where did I come from, and what is my purpose in this world, can all be traced back to the very beginning, God created us, which means God owns But being owned does not elicit positive feelings out of us, does it? So why on earth should we embrace God's ownership? Because of what David teaches us next. God is glorious. Verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Five times in these short four verses, God is referred to as the King of glory. If you read the Old Testament, you'll learn that ground zero for God's glory centered around what became known as the Ark of the Covenant. God commanded his people Israel to build him a chest. It was covered in gold. Inside the chest, three things that God told them to put in there. Tablets of the Ten Commandments, the staff of the first high priest Aaron, and a jar of manna, God's miraculous bread that he provided for them every morning while they lived in the desert. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was a lid, again covered in gold, with angels, cherubim, with their wings outstretched. And that Ark of the Covenant was placed in a tented temple known as the Tabernacle. And the Israelites believed that this is God's earthly dwelling place. Of course, God is everywhere. They knew that. 
But for some reason, he had sovereignly chose to place his glory right there around this ark. And they could see it. When they would go to worship, they could see smoke. They could see fire. They could see very tangible and manifested the presence of God. Generations later, Israel was not being led by wise leaders. And they went to battle against their neighbors, their mortal enemies, the Philistines. And it was 50-50 on whether or not they would win that battle. So the leader said, hey, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant out with us to battle. Thinking it would be some sort of talisman or good luck charm. But we know that God doesn't work that way. We know that we don't just get to say to him, this is what I'm doing, come and join me. That's backwards. So you can imagine how that battle went. They lost and they lost decisively. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. Imagine what it would have been like to have the presence of God stolen from you. So the Philistines take it back to their capital and they placed it where they placed all their other religious artifacts in the Temple of Dagon. That was the God that they primarily worshipped. And he had a big statue in the middle of the temple. So they placed the Ark of the Covenant right next to it. In the morning they came back, the statue of Dagon had fallen over face first in front of the Ark of the Covenant. But they're thinking the same thing that you and I think. Oh, there must have been an earthquake that came through. Somehow it missed my house and it missed your house and it missed your house. But it just landed right on the temple and so they just propped it back up. Next morning they came back in to check on things. Dagon again, faced first in front of the Ark of the Covenant. This time his head was chopped off and his hands were chopped off. And then the Philistine men began to be infected with tumors. So almost every man that you knew was suffering with these tumors. And there were plagues of mice assaulting the people. And so the Philistines figured out what we already know, that the hand of God was against them. So they built a cart and they placed the Ark of the Covenant on the cart. They attached the cart to some oxen and pointed those oxen towards the border of Israel. And just walked behind. When it got to the border of Israel, the Philistines were thankful and they turned around and went back to their homes. Because they were learning what David is trying to teach us in Psalm 24. That God is glorious and there is no one like him. And every would-be God, every would-be idol will eventually find itself face first in front of the Lord. It doesn't matter whether it's a statue representing our religion. It doesn't matter whether it is a historic person representing a religion. It doesn't matter if someone who is a leader, a king, a prime minister, a president, a senator, a representative, a mayor. It doesn't matter if it's a CEO or a mid-level manager or you and I. Anyone who would willingly step into the place of God will eventually find themselves face first in front of him because he is glorious and it's unique. David also teaches us that God is able. He says in verse 8, Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. Now strong and mighty, obviously they're metaphors, but they have a unique meaning. To be strong means an inherent strength. God possesses strength, but to be mighty is that strength expressed. Many of you men played high school football here in Texas. You are a living stereotype. And if you've ever been around a varsity football team, you know that there are young men who are lions in the weight room. 
I mean, they're just putting up outrageous numbers and bench press and squat and power cleans. But they never play in the game because that strength does not translate into the football field. But when David says that God is strong and mighty, he possesses the strength and he possesses the ability to exert that strength in our lives and in the world. Earlier this week, one of our worship leaders that leads out our other campus, he and his wife were hit by a drunk driver. It wasn't serious in the way that most of us would describe seriousness. They did have to go to the hospital and emergency room, but no broken bones, nothing serious. But the doctor said to him specifically, you're going to be in a lot of pain this week. He primarily makes his living playing instruments. And so at the beginning of the week, it was really impossible. His arms and his shoulders were in great pain. His fingers were kind of locked up the way that would happen when you have great back pain or shoulder pain or arm pain. But he went to rehearsal anyway. And at the beginning of the band rehearsal, they started to pray as they do every week. And his story back to us is somehow in the middle of the prayer, he just became aware of the presence of God in his life. And it was like God himself opened up his hand. He was able to play and he was able to lead this morning. Not huge on the scale of miracles. But God has the power. And he showed his might by expressing that power. Jesus was walking through a town in Matthew chapter 9 and he sees these two blind men and they call out, Have mercy on us, son of David. The scripture says when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. We all have to answer that question at one point or another. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Most of us would say, yes, I believe that you are able. But I love the perseverance of these two men. Look at the scripture again. They make their request. Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, we don't get every little detail of this story. But it seems by this reading, Jesus just ignores them and walks into the house. And they follow him there. It reminds me of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She had exhausted all of her resources trying to fix her infirmity. Nothing was working. She heard that Jesus was coming through her town. And so she went to try to get in front of him so that she might be healed. But when she got there, there was this massive crowd, a throng of people all around Jesus. But she didn't let the crowd stop her. She pressed through the crowd, grabbed the edge of his robe and was instantly healed of what she had been afflicted with for 12 years. She didn't let the crowd stop her. These men, they just followed Jesus right into the house. So if God asks you the question, do you believe that I am able to do this? Most of us would say yes. But the best proof of your faith is perseverance. It takes very little faith to ask God one time, It takes more faith to ask him a second time and a third time and a 50th time and a hundredth time and a thousandth time. Anybody can ask once, but only the faithful will ask over and over and over again. Only the faithful will say, I think maybe you've just ignored my request. I'm going to follow you into the house. Only the faith-filled say, there's a crowd and I don't want to bother him, but I'm going to push through anyway. 
See, our attitude would be, God, I believe that you are able and I'm going to seek you until I see your ability. He's strong and he's mighty. David also tells us that God fights. Verse 8, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And it says in verse 10, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Scholars tell us the best, most accurate way to translate that phrase, the Lord of hosts, is the Lord of angel armies. You remember the prophet Elisha was being pursued by a king because his prophecies and his powers were really causing a problem for that kingdom. And so Elisha was sort of on the run with his assistant. And one morning the assistant wakes up, steps outside the tent and sees that the army that's been pursuing them has surrounded them on every side. And he does what an assistant would do in that moment. He steps back into the tent and says, Elisha, you got a real problem out here. And Elisha is cool about it. He just prays a simple prayer. God, let him see. The assistant looks again. He still sees the army surrounding them, but surrounding the army is angel after angel after angel after angel decked out in armor. Because God fights. He's the Lord of hosts. He has angel armies. So it's true. You may look around right now and you are surrounded on every side by stress and responsibility and sickness and pain and relational dysfunction it's just got you surrounded you can see that but what you can't see is how God has surrounded all of those things how his army is intervening for us constantly and consistently because he fights God owns God is glorious God is able God fights so I will verse 3 so I will live with cleaned hands David says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands. So we left the Ark of the Covenant at the border of Israel in the Philistine territory. Someone just took in the Ark of the Covenant into their home and God blessed them. Years and years and years passed. David is now the king of Israel, and he is having military victory one right after the other. And so he just wants to put a feather in his cap and says, now I want a spiritual victory. Let's go and get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it to its rightful place in the city of God, the city of Zion, Jerusalem. And so he picks 30,000 men to come and be in his entourage, and they parade down to where the Ark of the Covenant is being kept. And they do what the Philistines did. They build a cart, set the Ark of the Covenant on the cart. Now, what David didn't know or didn't take the time to read or didn't take the time to learn was that God had prescribed exactly how that thing should be carried. It shouldn't be carried on a cart. It should be carried on poles, resting on the shoulders of priests who were dedicated for that specific purpose. But David didn't know that or didn't remember that or ignored that. And he just imitated what the Philistines had done years before. So they put it on a cart, hook the cart up to some oxen, and they start towards Jerusalem. And they're having a great time. And some point along the road, the oxen stumble or the cartwheel gets a pothole. And the Ark of the Covenant, 
God's ground zero for his glory on planet earth begins to rock back and forth. And a man named Uzzah does what you and I would do. He reaches out to brace the ark and dies. Right there. Instantly. Immediately. Dies. David is furious with God. So they put the Ark of the Covenant in the nearest home, the home of a man named Obed-Edom. They leave it there, and David hangs his head in shame. His entourage of 30,000 people hang their heads in shame, and they walk in defeat back to Jerusalem. So when David says, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? But he who has clean hands, that means a lot to him because of Uzzah. But it's more than cleaned hands. It's more than clean actions. It's more than just good-looking surface things. He also says that we will live with a purified heart. But he who has a clean, hand, clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus tells us that our hearts are not all that pure. Mark chapter 7. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus reminds us today that affairs don't start on Facebook. They start in our hearts. Pornography doesn't start on web pages. It starts in our hearts. Greed doesn't start with our paychecks. Starts in our hearts. Racism didn't start with our great great grandparents and they passed down a little bit to us. It starts in our hearts. Out of the heart come all of these evil things, and these things need to be purified. And God has had a plan for that purification since the very beginning. In the Old Testament, it was one day called the Day of Atonement. A day in the fall that the people of God set aside to worship God with brokenness. That's not usually how we think of worshiping God. We want to celebrate, but they worshiped with their brokenness. And on that day, God would atone for their sins. The priest who was responsible for them would actually take off his normal priestly garments and put on a fresh set. Then he would make a sacrifice to cover his own sin. Then he would make sacrifices to cover the sins of God's people. And it was a really bad day for two goats. One of the goats after flipping a coin and casting lots, would be sacrificed. And the priest would take the blood of that sacrifice and walk in to where the Ark of the Covenant was kept in that tinted temple called the tabernacle. And he would sprinkle the blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Then he would go to the other goat and he would lay his hands on that goat and he would begin to confess the sins of the entire nation. Can you imagine how long that would take? About the same length that it would take me to confess all of my sins. And then somebody would take the goat and lead it outside. Away from the people of God. Out into the wilderness. And they would watch that goat be led away. And in their minds what they know is this is God taking away our sins from us. For another year. Now we can see the shadow of Jesus hanging over all of these things. That's why First John chapter 1 It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
See, Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice. He took off his heavenly garments as the son of God and he put on garments of skin and bone and humanity. It's his blood that has been sprinkled, dripping from the cross outside of Jerusalem that brings us peace with God. Jesus was led away by Roman soldiers and in him we watch God take all of our sin and remove its power away from us eternally. The reality is, is if you believe in Christ today, if you're united with him, you have been cleaned and you have been purified. But not every choice that I make reflects that. That's why in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control, steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at this verse. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you've believed in Christ, you're united with him. Your hands have been cleaned and your heart has been purified. But there's a responsibility for us to not forget that those things have happened. See, in the past tense, your hands have been cleaned and your heart pure, but we have present tense responsibility. God has purified, so I will live pure. God has cleaned so I will live clean. And finally, David tells us, so I will live for God alone. Verse four, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. David says, I'm gonna offer my life to God alone. And anything less than God is not worthy of my life. But it's hard to know. Am am I offering my life up to something other than God? I get so focused on what's right in front of me and the day-to-day rhythms and busyness of life. It's hard to take inventory. But a few questions are helpful. Question number one, who or what occupies your thoughts the most? Who do you think about the most? What do you think about the most? Who or what would be exceedingly painful to let go? Who or what do I depend on the most? Who or what occupies most of my time and why? For a lot of us, that's an easy answer. The last question, my job occupies most of my time. I have to be there from eight to five and I spend an hour in commute at least every day. It's my job that takes most of my time or it's my kids that take most of my time. I'm parenting them all day and then I'm taking them to dance. I'm taking them to baseball and basketball and sports and uh, fun things. We'd say, well, those are good things. They are good things. We can have bad reasons for doing those good things. I mean, you can offer up your life to your job if the purpose of your job is to earn as much money as possible so you can have as easy of life as possible. It's a good thing working, bad reason. You can offer your life up to your kids, even though 
being a parent is a good thing. If the point of the baseball practices and the baseball games is that when you walk into the baseball stadium, you can roll your shoulders back because of how proud and how great your kids are in the eyes of the other parents. Good thing, bad reason. That's us offering our lives up. And David says, I'm not going to offer our, my life up to anything less than God. And we shouldn't settle for that either because it is less. See, you were made in the image of God and you come with unimaginable potential to change this world in Jesus' name. And it is bad stewardship to you, for you to offer your life, which has so much potential to do so much good to anything less than God. So he says, I won't do it. I'm not gonna offer my life to an idol. I'm not gonna offer my life to something that's not real. So David is in Jerusalem defeated because Uzzah died. After a while, he says, I wanna try again. The first time he came as a triumphant king Victory after victory after victory. This will just be another victory. But this time he comes with humility. And this time he comes with poles and not a cart. They go into the house of Obed-Edom and the priests take their poles and they pick up the Ark of the Covenant. They set it on the road. And the scripture says that they take six steps. One, two, three, four, five, six. They set down the Ark of the Covenant and they have church right there and they worship God because they survived. They didn't die. The last time they did this, someone died. But this time, no one has died. And then they celebrate and the priests pick back up the Ark of the Covenant and they start walking towards Jerusalem. And the scripture says that David can't handle himself. He is so ecstatic with praise towards God. He's just dancing around the ark. It even says that he takes off his kingly outer robe and is just dressed like kind of a normal person, almost undressed, but he doesn't even care. Now, what's interesting is the first time that David came for the ark with his entourage of 30,000, it says that when they were doing that, David was making merry. He was having a great time. The second time that he came for the ark, he was having a great time. And I'm thinking from the outside, you and I would not be able to tell the difference. Probably a lot of the same motions. But one God rejected and one God received. What was the difference? The second time David came with an accurate, great version, picture in his mind, understanding of who God was. The first time he came saying, I am so great and I will do this thing. The second time he came saying, God is so great and he will let me do this thing if he wants to. See, I don't think that God is asking very many of us to completely rearrange our lives. I don't think that he's asking very many of you to quit your job and become pastors. I don't know how many of you, not more than a handful, God is asking you to sell everything that you have and move to Africa. But it's possible that you and I are 
carting our kids around from this thing to that thing to this thing to that thing and it means nothing to God. It's possible that you and I are spending all of those hours at work day after day after day after day and it means nothing to God. But if we come humbly with a great and clear and accurate picture of who God is, those same things now become worship. Those same things now become something God is receiving. I'm still going to work hour after hour after hour, but God is receiving it because I know who he is. I'm still carting my kids around like a holy Uber service, but God is receiving it as worship. Why? Because I understand that he owns and he's glorious and he's able and that he fights. So I'm going to live with clean hands and I'm going to live with a purified heart and I am not going to offer up my life to anything that's less than him. Let's pray. Why don't you pray right where you are? Just ask God, God, what do you want to teach me about yourself? see you today. We listen to your voice and we make these requests by the name of your son.